Welcome to Tilting at Windmills with your host, Mike Donahue. Hey, this is Mike, and I think we've got a pretty good show for y'all this week. Um, I have a entertaining, I think, conversation with Ron Kasdorf, a professor at uh, College of the Canyons. We start out talking a little bit about you know, the difference between facts and stories and uh, et cetera. But it, the conversation gets, I think, a bit more interesting uh, when we pivot into politics and how the discussion of subjectivity impacts our, our everyday dialogue and discourse. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining. It's another week of Tilting at Windmills. Again, I'm Mike, and as promised... This week's guest is a professor from the College of the Canyons up in Santa Clarita. Ron, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to the adventure. Yes, and it will be quite an adventure because, gentle listeners, Ron is going to tell me that I am wrong in thinking that there are such things as facts and objectivity And this worries me, obviously, you know, we're right in the middle of the trial, the impeachment trial going on right now. And I think I hear the word fact being bandied about about every two or three minutes. So from my my perspective and the words facts and alternate facts, they've been right at the center of this sort of maelstrom of back and forth between the left and the right and the ups and the downs. And I think initially I have to have... My, my baseline, just and this is just where I'm coming from, and then, then you can tell me why I'm just an idiot and completely wrong. You know, if I don't have facts, if I don't have objectivity, then my world is ethereal. Um, I'm just, I'm constantly in quicksand. And I think from, from a leftist point of view, we've reached that p- sort of point with the right at times, or at least I feel like we do, where... This is such a obvious fact. We're we're now in. Is the sky blue? Is the world round? Will will the sun rise in the east? Kind of stuff. So, Ron, you're going to tell me why I'm wrong. So, what have you got for me? Why am I why am I off base on this? Uh, well, you know, it depends on how we define our term uh, facts. If by fact we mean uh, some immutable, absolutely true idea or occurrence, then I disagree with that. And and the main reason I disagree with that definition is there's no way to transfer the things that are out in the world, whether they're events or the speeches that people make or things we see, whatever it is, there's no way to transfer that neutrally and objectivity into our beings. There's no direct connection between the things that happen outside of ourselves and the sense we make from those things. You cannot take an event or if you want to take, you know, uh, the, the phone call that President Trump made to who was that? The, uh, the Ukraine? Uh, that, Zelensky. That, uh, w- yeah, was the impetus for the first impeachment. You know, whatever those words that we have. There's no way to take the meaning. There's there's no inherent meaning in those words. You can't take that transcript and press it into your body and have a direct understanding of whatever it was that transpired during that conversation. We have to interpret the meanings. 
And that space between whatever happens that happens and our understanding of whatever happens, that's subjective. And for me, there's no way of getting around that. Okay, so let's start with something a little less uh, nuanced than, than the Ukraine call. Let's just start with two plus two equals four. Uh, yes, it does, because we've agreed that there are no, there's a certain number system and the certain numbers of two and two uh, equal this number four. And nobody's saying that there aren't agreements that work and that we shouldn't keep. But if you go to another culture that has no knowledge of our number system, uh, how is two plus two equals four a fact to uh, some Amazon tribe in the rainforest? Well, even to, let's just say, you know, the French, right? Uh, they don't use the same word for two. But regardless, if I have... So, so you're saying it's completely dependent on uh, the language? Culture. The language and, and uh, language is a crucial and very powerful aspect of culture and how culture domesticates its citizens to abide by those cultural rules or facts. Right. But I, th I think if I, if I have two apples... Right. And I add right. another two apples. I now have four apples. And regardless of what words I use from one to four and regardless of what word I use for apple, it doesn't change the fact that I have, well, for lack of a better word, four of these <laughs> round, red, shiny things in front of me. Yes, you have a certain number of round, red, shiny things that have a certain smell. But as soon as you go to what that means, then it's interesting. Nobody's saying that there aren't. Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying that there aren't objects out in the world. What my point about there not being facts is the meanings that we make from those objects. Those are not facts. And that's what matters. The fact that though you have four objects of however you want to describe them exist, that really is not interesting or meaningful. You know, what's interesting and uh, useful and crucial to the ways we build culture is the meaning and the significance that we derive or make from those objects, whatever you want to call them. What does it mean, Mike, that you have four apples? It means I have, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a pragmatist, realist, cynicist. So it just means I have four apples. Well, but, but see, then again, we're, we're not going to have an interesting discussion about, about values and what we should do about the things that occur. I mean, earlier when you introduced the idea of our political situation, you know, things are happening. And what matters to me is the meanings we make from those things and why we make those meanings. No, I just, so, I, I, yeah, I just wanted to start, like, I have to start, I'm, I'm a very slow learner, so I've got to go in incremental steps, right, from, from A to B and B to C. So I'm trying to get there. So I think, I think to your point, to the bigger point, I think the frustration that we have so, so if we classify all the taxonomy and all the things that could be potentially labeled fact, because everybody's guilty. I'm guilty of saying it's a fact when such and such, when it really isn't a provable fact. Right. And how ultimately does anybody get back to some kind of bedrock uh, point of or origin that authorizes those facts? You know, what does it mean that something's a fact? 
Oh, so you're saying even the word fact we have cultural. Well, all, all again, to go back to your Apple example, you know, the idea that we call these round, red, shiny objects, you know, we, we use these uh, markings, A-P-P-L-E, and we use these sounds, Apple, to mean those things. That's arbitrary. There's nothing natural or uh, unavoidable or inherent in that. That's a cultural artifact that we make up these sounds and use these signs, A-P-P-L-E, to indicate those objects. Okay. So now, now if we translate that into, you know, sort of the fake news category, and, and, but you are, you are conceding the point that there is a bedrock of you know, whether it's physical, tangible, whatever, there is a, oh, there is a bedrock there's out shit there. out there in the world. You know, there, uh, there are trees and sounds and rocks. And, you know, uh, when I kick a stone, my, my foot feels it. And, uh, the pressure of, you know, on Galileo's eyeballs, when he decided that the, the sun is the center of the universe and it's not the earth, but those forces don't mean anything in and of themselves. They exist, but those forces and those things that exist do not compel us to make any particular meanings from them. And that's where subjectivity and interpretation and what I think is interesting comes in. That, that, that space between the realities that are out there and the meanings we make from them. So in terms of trying to tie this into the political discourse and, and the argument over facts versus opinions that currently seems to be going on specifically within our culture. To me, there's a scale of like zero to a hundred of, you know, this, we can all agree at X percentage that these are facts, that the world is round and the sky is blue kind of stuff. And I feel like, you know, maybe from zero to 75%, we seem to get there pretty easily, right? We all know and agree that if I kick a rock, it's going to hurt my toe. But once you hit a certain threshold, sort of all bets are off, right? Tell me more about that threshold. And again, it, the key is agreement. And you use that word in your description as well. We agree that these things are so. But, it, but again, there's a difference between the earth being round and the meaning we make from that. And that's the part where uh, that I think we have interesting conversations. The idea that the earth is round and we agree that it's round. And if we want to call that a fact or an intersubjective agreement, the earth's roundness isn't interesting. What we do with that, how we respond to the idea of it and what that means, that's interesting to me. The fact that you know, the idea that things have shapes and we agree on certain shapes and we make this agreement, why we do that and what we do with that is what matters to me, not the fact that we've done it or the agreement has been made. Okay. The, so you're more curious about the process of how did we get here? Yes. And the stories we tell about the meanings of things. And that's the part that I'm most interested in. I mean, there are four apples. Okay, what does it mean? Are we going to use them as weapons? Are we going to, do we value them as food items? Do we uh, show them as status symbols? What are we going to do with these things? So is there a correlation to 
what you're interested in and the political discourse of the day. And, and because to me, I see a huge disconnect. I just, there's a huge. Oh, absolutely. And, and let me, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but when you say, is there a correlation? Correlations aren't out there to be. We make correlations. We make meanings. So I would never say that there is or is not a correlation because a correlation is something that human beings do. My students will often say to me, well, that makes sense. And my response is, no, that does not make sense. Whatever that is, it just is. Either you make sense or you do not make sense. That's why I'm against it. And, and people will say, oh, well, find the meaning to that. We don't find meanings. We make meanings. They're not out there to be located for us to stumble into and then pick them up and put them in our backpack and then display them when we think those meanings are appropriate. We make meanings. We make correlations. Human beings do these things. One of my favorite Richard Rorty quotations is, the world does not speak. Only we do. Okay. I got to be honest. I'm having a little bit of an existential crisis right now. Good. Good. <laughs> Good for you. I like my ground to be terra firma. Gosh darn it. Well, you know, I'm okay. You, really? Maybe you don't. Oh God, I can't. Do, do you understand um, my discomfort at feeling like everything is questionable? Uh, sure, sure. That's frightening, but I think it's worth it. Because you're saying that's just the way it is. Whether you like it or not, Absolutely. that's the way it is. Uh, well, that's my, that's my story. I'm a big believer in stories. To me, everything's a story. The story I tell myself, the story I'm going to tell later about our exchange, you know, everything is a narrative that we put together from the meanings we make. Okay. I, so I'm trying to tie this into, again, trying to make a relationship. And a correlation. You're, you're, you're making one. You're not trying. I, I like Yoda. It's either do it or not, Mike. Oh, God. No. See, see, some of my students love me. Some hate me. <laughs> I am, after this, I'm just going to go into a closet, curl into a fetal position and cry for a little while. Um, so let's take Donald Trump again. Sure. D Donald Trump has told himself the story that he won the election. He, I believe, he firmly believes that he won the election, that it was, it was stolen from him. However, I would posit to you that it is a fact that Biden won the election. And, and uh, whatever Trump's yes. story is that he's telling himself is completely irrelevant to the facts at hand. From the evidence that we choose to focus on, and, you know, and again, let's be honest, none of us has seen every single ballot that's been cast and has physically uh, totaled them up. We're taking people's words for counts, but by all of the credible measures, he lost. And whether he's delusional or he, you know, just wants to be a dick about it. Uh, he's chosen to tell this story, whether he, you know, I, you know, does he believe it or, you know, maybe he's just putting it out there to stir the pot. I mean, it's hard to know, but clearly, uh, his narrative is at odds with what most people accept as, and you can't see it, but I'm doing single air quotes around this word fact of the election. I agree with you. And he's chosen to tell this story. And I don't think it's a, a healthy one for him to tell. And, We'll see if it ends up being beneficial. I get that, but because I got, my, my, I but I got the feeling earlier that that there was equivalency between facts and stories that they held the same uh, inherent weight. 
equivalency between no because first of all i don't i don't believe if from what i understand of most people's understanding of fact i don't support that belief so i i believe that everything's a story that human beings make agreements about what things mean and we honor those agreements as long as they produce positive outcomes and whatever you know whatever happens you know in terms of a certain number of votes or uh you know what people in georgia say about how the election was run people tell stories about those occurrences and events and single quotations facts and that's what matters the way they put those things together in their heads and within their discourse communities as coherent narratives and either we're going to tell stories that are uh, beneficial to us, you know, that get us to look at things in the most critical and pragmatic and useful ways, or we're going to tell delusional narratives that are self-serving and ego-driven. Right. But in, in zero-sum situations like politics, there you, you talk about the, the stories sort of almost in a, if I heard it right, almost in a Darwinistic manner, right, where if there's a positive or a positive derived from the story, then it then it continues or spreads. Yes, or- I like that. You know, I, and if, with your permission, I'm going to use that. It's a survival of, it's, it's, narr- it's narrative survival of the fittest. Whichever narrative is best suited to succeed in the environment, hopefully because it produces positive outcomes, then that narrative will continue to adapt and will be the one that we buy into. But the, I the, like that. It's free. Uh, the, Thank you. <laughs> please. <laughs> in a zero-sum situation like politics, however, you have, you have a only one side is going to have and I, I, I'm, I'm even struggling with that because we have 74 million people, of which maybe 60 million, believe and feel good about the story that Trump really did win the election, that that is a positive reinforcement to them. Would you? If, if that's, you know, I'm not going to question your numbers, but if that's the okay. case, okay. Uh, then, we're in, then we're in very dangerous and deep doo-doo territory. That's scary. That people would not that people uh, give him credence and believe that he did win and are willing to reject evidence to the contrary. That's scary to me. Right. I and I don't I don't have the real number in front of me, but I think it's significant. I think it's at least thirty or forty million. At least half of the people who voted for. Well, Trump. then here's an interesting question to me, anyway. You know, what is it about our current condition and and the forces of our culture that motivate a significant number to support that story of what happened? You know, what's going what's going on? I'll tell you, Ron. I'm going to call you out. It's it's people like you who tell us we have no facts. Uh, what's the connection between people like me telling you that and the, so many people believing that story? What's the connection? Because there has been a groundswell, I think primarily on the right, but maybe less or so on the left, where the concept of a fact is a fact is a fact, and science is a science is a science, has lost its intrinsic value, that now everything is now subjective that there is no more objectivity in anything. And, you know, this, this whole fake news, alternative facts, 
things that we used to assume were that in that percentage of bedrock commonality, that bedrock is being chipped away at pretty steadily. And, and a lot of it just comes from this sort of mantra out there that my opinions are just as important as your facts. My stories are just as important as your facts. Well, your facts are just the stories that you choose to tell. And, and I think to counter your point, if more people uh, saw themselves as responsible and powerful agents of the meanings they make, then they would, we wouldn't have this passive and just accepting without question reliance on these so-called ideas that get passed down to us through domestication that people call facts and that the power culture, you know, wants people to buy into because it satisfies their ends. And if we took responsibility for our subjectivity and stopped relying on these so-called bedrock facts to support us, then I think we would have a more engaged and active uh, citizenry that at some point, you know, might get us to the point where our democracy is actually meaningful. Right. But that's sort of like saying, if I had a billion dollars, I'd be a billionaire. Like, I, I get it. If if everybody, and because I think you're you're starting to speak about you know critical thought, right, and and a sense of responsibility for taking on board and then disseminating these stories that I hear. But I think you know again, if you ask ninety five percent of people, I think I think they'd all say yes. I'm a you know I'm a responsible person, and I don't I don't tell any lies. I don't spread any lies. Well, I mean, are, are they going to be uh, thorough and uh, honest in their critical evaluation of what they choose to talk about and how they present that? They will, uh, they I, will know, say I'm, yes. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I think a lot of people just kind of accept uh, their understanding without critically analyzing how things have gotten to this point. And to your point earlier about it would be so comforting to have these facts that uh, we all hold in common that support us and, and are immutable brings up the question of, you know, what, what's going on now? You know, what have we lost? Why, why are we so divided? And why do we not have uh, values in common that perhaps at one point we did? I don't know if there's, there's a book that's, uh, I think his name is E.D. Hirsch, and the title of the book is Cultural Literacy. And his goal in that book was to set out all the things that Americans should know because we are losing a sense of culture because, you know, we are so disparate and uh, diverse in, in our you know, ethnicities and religions and heritages, you know, that this was his solution. You know, so, so if you're looking for you know, that comfort of those facts that we could all depend upon at some point, whenever that was, maybe we can uh, address that hole in our lives by seeing ourselves as making agreements for the common good and taking responsibility for those agreements, as opposed to facts that are outside of ourselves. Well, I, I think the issue, and, and I've, I've, I, I have, despite what many people think, I have many right-wing friends, and all of them feel like they are arbiters of the truth, and, and they feel as if they've done a review. And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I, is it, 
do you do you then do you have any theories as to why we find ourselves in in this place of disconnect as a nation? Well, first of all, I'm going to quibble with your choice that we don't find ourselves in it. We put ourselves in it. You know, again, uh, my distaste for finding and discovering that makes us passive. You know, it's not like, oh, here we are. I just found myself here. What's my part? What have I done to put myself in this situation? And so I would look at, you know, I. But that's a bit like on on the macro level. Right. Isn't that a bit. You know, we don't have complete control of our environment. Right. We have no control of our environment. Well, I have an AC system. I'm not sure about you, but. Uh, yes, you do. Uh, so that's true. You, you can control the temperature, but in terms of, uh, things outside of myself, I, I rarely, well, you're controlling your AC. You're not, well, in a sense, you are controlling the environment, but the way that I look at it, you know, I can't make people or things do what I want them to do. You can adjust your AC and change the temperature within your living space, but you don't have control over the larger forces in the universe. But but that's another issue, I guess. Right. Okay. But we don't find, again, we don't find ourselves going back to that, you know, I, I wouldn't word it that, you know, suddenly I found myself in this situation because that takes agency away from me. That here I am, I just found myself here, I, I'm totally innocent and passive, as opposed to, you know, what have I done? You know, what, how have I contributed to this situation that I'm in? Uh, Which I think most people don't want to address. No, of course not. Who, like, who wants to take additional responsibility? Right? It's not Well, a, I mean, well, if I'm serious about my life, I, I think I should. Yeah. I mean, too many people are passive, Mike, in my view. Too many people just accept things the way they are. And, you know, they're the 60 percent or whatever that support Trump's story. Uh, they'll just accept it because it feels good, you know, rather than looking at, uh, you know, why they are making that decision. You know, what is it about that narrative that attracts them? OK, so are you saying that in some part this disassociation, for lack of a better term, is is just based around sort of that feel good and and the human tendency to just gravitate towards that whatever that hormone is that makes us feel good um sure and you know rather than exercising our rationality and our critical thinking uh abilities you know we just take the easy way out absolutely and you know most people will just go along with things you know, they just buy into the a certain narrative without analyzing it. And, you know, who's telling it and why is this person telling it? And what are the effects of telling this story rather than another story? Most people, I think most people are lazy, Mike. Sure, I'm, I'm lazy. I'm lazy as hell. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in, in some ways I am, you know, but when it comes to the stories I want to tell and the ideas I believe in and which are my values, you know, I'm pretty rigorous about that. You are, but you've also, is it, is it fair to expect rationality or critical thought from someone who has never been exposed to the concepts of either or taught how to think critically? No, I don't believe in fairness, but, you know, it, it's unhealthy and it's counterproductive. No, I mean, if, how can you hold people responsible uh, for not knowing what they've never had a chance to know? 
Okay, so a while I back, agree. to your knowledge, you're you're an educator. To your knowledge, how many of the K through 12 schools that you're familiar with teach any sort of critical thinking? Hardly any. It's terrible. I mean, honestly, I mean, our public education system, you know, it's sad. It is sad, Mike. Teachers are lazy. Students are lazy. And in my experience, they just kind of get passed through and... You know, uh, I'm a big advocate of there being no public education. I think everything should be private. If we took away some of the tax dollars that go to fund our public schools, you know, and parents had or maybe vouchers to, you know, to shop for schools, they might be a little bit uh, more invested and there'd be more competition. Because I think, uh, you know, in my and my colleagues as well, you know, I see English instructors at College of the Canyons and I can't believe what's going on. I mean, but what am I going to do? I mean, I see their, I, I mean, I see their, uh, you know, their writings that they put out there. When we used to have on-ground classes, I see what they leave because we share classrooms. I see what they leave on the computer screens. And to my mind, how can somebody who writes this way and puts out these ideas be an effective evaluator and helper of students who want to learn to write and think? It, it, it's tough. It's just me on my island, Mike. It's just me <laughs> tilting, tilting at windmills. But I'm not willing to. I'm not willing to give up the fight. I think we found the libertarian, folks. <laughs> uh, I am. Okay. You got it. Guilty as charged. I'm just going to go out on a limb here, and and please don't infer anything <laughs> from this from this question. But are you a middle aged white male? I'm an old white male. Okay. I'm. <laughs> I'm old. Old is the new middle aged. <laughs> I'm I'm on Medicare. I would be 66 my next birthday. I was born in 1955. I'm an old white male. Upper mids. Okay. That's interesting. I tell myself a story that almost every libertarian I've ever met has been a middle-aged to older white male. And what do you think accounts for that, uh, the commonality that you've made from the evidence that you've gleaned? I think it it stems from I hate this word. I, I, well, I shouldn't say hate it. I don't I don't care for it. But I think it comes from a place of of privilege in as much as in my mind in my head when I have stuff and so when I am forced to consider a world where everyone is sort of self-dependent, I'm safe and I'm good and I'm in the the safe zone. And so I am open, more receptive to the idea of a dog-eat-dog world or a world that doesn't, you know, have a lot of restrictions placed on it because I've, I've already ensconced myself in the safety net. Uh, yes, I get what you're saying. And that's a coherent narrative. And I get that. And I do have stuff now, but would it surprise you to know that I was born into a very, very poor family? You know, my brother and I were the only Caucasians in a a heavily minority neighborhood, and we got picked on because we were surfers, even though we never surfed or rarely went to the beach. (laughs) And I went to shitty schools, and I managed to succeed. I didn't have stuff then. So, so it's your perception or your, your thought that because you succeeded, anybody, any of the non-Caucasian guys around you had the 
equivalent chance to succeed, the equivalent opportunity? Uh, I don't know. Nobody. It's not equal. Everybody has challenges no matter what. Uh, but I believe that, you know, a lot of it is on individual initiative. And it doesn't mean that I don't believe in helping others or that there shouldn't be some programs to help others. But I do think that we have gone too far in that direction and has created, you know, an, an underclass that is just content with, uh, you know, sucking at the teat of big government. Okay. Out of curiosity, when did you first self-identify as a libertarian? Uh, probably when I started to listen to Larry Elder. Do you know who Larry Elder is? I do know who Larry Elder is. Yes. How long? I like Larry Elder. Uh, this was probably, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe early 90s. Okay. So you became yeah, a libertarian in your 40s? Uh, yes. And I, you know, I think I always had a sense of personal risk. I'm a big believer in personal responsibility. You know, I don't know if that's come across enough, but I'm a big believer <laughs> Just you know, in uh, taking responsibility for my decisions and what I do and owning my shit. And even though I didn't have that word libertarian, when I listened to him, uh, what he said made a lot of sense to me. I do think that, you know, private enterprise does a much better job than the public sector in most cases. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have some government support and programs, but I think we have way too many. Like, for example, you know, what the fuck is the secretary of education doing? Why is there a cabinet post of the secretary of education? How is that helpful to individual schools and school districts? Because it, it tries to ensure that at a federal level, there's some consistency of standards that are not reliant on individual states. And you don't think that the individual states or school districts uh, care enough about uh, the children they're educating to, you know, make those decisions. And that if, if we didn't have federal mandates that children wouldn't be learning useful skills and concepts. I, I firmly believe that in Texas, Alabama, and Mississippi, children's would be taught that uh, humans hunted down dinosaurs because the world is only 6,000 years old. So uh, I, I, I get your example, but I, I'm, it's hard for me to believe that that's the prevailing opinion. Okay. Okay. In, in but, school but, districts, but it, it could be, and I, you know, it could be. But I, again, I, I don't see that. I don't see this, the nationalization of education. I don't think it's been very successful. I mean, no child left behind. Where did that go? Right. I'm just trying to die. I'm, I'm just trying to to connect two of your statements. So you said earlier about the the the, the sense of you're not in control of your environment. Right. Which I correct. But and yet, even though I'm not in control of my environment, I'm I still am. I still can create or or through effort or through whatever I have control over in part over my destiny. I have control over the choices I make that the, the things that happen in my environment and the things that exist in my environment, I choose to make the meanings I do out of those things. And I respond to those meanings the way that I choose to, which I then craft into the story about me and the world and other people. And if the meanings I make and how I respond to those meanings 
of the things I don't control out there, if I'm able to craft them into a coherent narrative that I tell myself about the world and other people and what I should be doing, and from uh, the best of my honest evaluation, that story produces positive benefits for me in my life and the people I care most about, then I'm going to continue to tell that story. That I have complete control over my choices of what I make things mean and how I respond to those choices. That's all on me. So I would, I would argue, or at least try to make the point, that as a white male in our society, you have the luxury of making those choices. And there's a lot of people in our society whose choice structure is much more limited. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Nobody has the same choosing uh, resources as somebody else. And, and, you know, from my childhood, I had very limited choosing resources and other people do, too. I'm not I'm not arguing that everybody has the uh, the same kinds of choosing resources and the abilities to make meanings and to choose to respond to them in the same way that I do. And whatever we can do, probably through education, to improve the choosing arsenal of people out there, I'm on board with that. I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't pretend that everybody has the emotional and intellectual wherewithal to make healthy choices. So what are we going to do about that? Well, I don't even know if it's if it boils down to emotional or intellectual. I, I think some of it is environmental, and so I don't. I don't want to. I don't want. I want to. I want to try. Let's wrangle this bar back towards okay. back towards politics. I. I if we're making the statement that that part of the issue in our discourse currently is due to the bedrock of what we both sides consider facts to being to being eroded, just to continue the geological theme, and this thought that in order to get to a higher ground, it requires critical thinking and just that understanding of quote unquote rational thought. And we're not, the reality is we're not going to, that's, that is not a currently, it's not a valid option. And even if we snapped our fingers and said tomorrow, we're going to start critical thinking from grade one or whatever, it's still going to take 20, 30 years for that to propagate into the public. So is there anything that you feel could be done now, could be done currently or even me when I engage with my right-wing friends, because I say, like, here's the thing. Here's the typical conversation. Mike, AOC killed JFK. Okay, no, AOC wasn't alive when JFK was killed. Okay, well, how do you prove that? Well, okay, well, here's, here's her bio on, in the New York Times. Well, I don't trust the New York Times. I don't believe the New York Times. Okay, here's the Washington Post or the BBC. No, I don't trust them. So... How do I, how would you suggest? Well, that's, that, that, that's just lunacy. I mean, well, to bring back Larry Elder, you know, Larry Elder would say that, you know, 10% of the population believes that Elvis is still alive and 5% believe that if you send him a card, he'll get it. I mean, I mean, that, that seems to me just crazy talk. Okay. You think, you think we have, I mean, are there significant numbers of crazies that believe that, you know, don't trust any sources? 
Well, I mean, to me, I mean, I find that hard to believe. Well, to me, believing that, um, well, do you spend much time on Facebook? No, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a big social media person. No, I I do not. I would advise you to to stay away. I'm I'm happy. (laughs) But no, to me, uh, it's lunacy to say that there is wide scale voter fraud that impacted the outcome of the election. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, uh, to me, the delusional narrative that Trump is presenting, whether he actually believes it, in which case, you know, he's clearly delusional, which could be, or he doesn't believe it, but he he thinks it's a prudent political move and just wants to put it out there for his own political purposes, the, the, amount of support, and I'm just going to take your numbers, that uh, that story seems to be getting is troubling to me. And what are we what are we going to do? Seventy six percent of registered Republicans, and this was taken, I get in middle of January, 76 percent of Republicans stated that Trump received more votes regardless. OK, regardless of the even the outcome of the election. I mean, I think it's inferred yeah. there that even though he, we know he didn't receive more votes, but 76% of, of registered Republicans think he won the election. Are they, they're not all, and here's the problem. They're not all crazy. You talk no, to these people. Not. So no, I, 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 but then, then the question to me is what is going on in our current society and culture that prompts that kind of support? You know, what, what is going on? Let's ask some questions. You know, why is that the case? No, 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 professor. I come to professors for answers, not for questions. Oh, no. You, well, you don't get an answer unless you pose the question. You have to get the question first. Well, so in your what opinion, is going on? Yeah. What is going on? Yeah, what is going on? And I think, I mean, if you look at, you know, I looked, I, I watched most of the first impeachment uh, spectacle, and, and it's ridiculous. It's just a stage show. You know, there's no interest in listening with, to understand the other point of view. There's only my talking points and demonization of the other side. And there's no uh, sense that we're working together for any common good. There's no rational discourse. It's ridiculous. It's laughable to me. But I would I would argue, and again, I'm biased, right? I'm a leftist. Everybody's biased. Right. Celebrate your bias. <laughs> if, if you don't have a bias, you don't have a point of view. If you don't have a point of view or, or any kind of subjectivity, then you don't have a story to tell. You can't make meaning one without a bias. Biases are not always bad. I mean, it gets a bad rap. Bias is another word for perspective or point of view. Yeah, but bias is the reason... Why I'm trying to think why the Eagles think they have a good quarterback or Eagle fans think they have a chance to win the Super Bowl, right? That's that's biased. And because there's a harm, there's a certain harm that becomes with having too much bias. It's okay to be biased, I think, as long as you recognize your bias and limit your bias. Yes. But that that doesn't happen a whole lot nowadays. I and I would so I would argue to you to your original point about about the impeachment and and I think to discourse in general. I think the left certainly feels like, and I think they do, that if you looked at those those two arguments in the first impeachment trial and these arguments in this impeachment trial, the the left's argument is much more cohesive and, you know, just sort of matter of fact and, and here's what happened X, Y, Z. And the other side, 
was much more of what you described of in that sort of, you know, not histrionics per se, but just complete, you know, talking points and sort of, you know. Uh, I am going to respectfully disagree with you on that one, Michael. I, I think we have inflammatory hyperbolic rhetoric on both sides, on both sides. Yeah, but only and one side, only one side storm in the Capitol. Uh, yes, that's correct. Only one side did that, but there's been plenty of inflam or potentially inflammatory rhetoric on the left side too. Like, you know, we're going to impeach that motherfucker, which I, I think I, you know, and both sides are indulging in that. And, and exactly, uh, one side resulted in, you know, that event and the other side hasn't yet. But in terms of the, the stories that the sides are telling, I think they're both uh, inflammatory and demonizing. And neither one uh, shows any inclination to enter into a rational and polite exchange of ideas. And in the best of all possible worlds, I think that's what our democracy should be aiming for. You are you are earning your libertarian bumper sticker today. Uh, that is that is for sure. I will I will be checking my mailbox <laughs> vigilantly. No, I think you know, and, but I think that's a both sidesism, and I and which it is, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But to me, it's it's apples and oranges, right? The the rhetoric that you see and hear from the right and and Joe Republican. Democrats need to die. I'd rather be dead than be a Democrat. Um, Democrats well, are, I mean, are traitors. Know, Biden wants to take Trump outside the gym if they were in high school and beat him up. I mean, I think we could pick and choose and, you know, cherry pick, you know, the same kind of, uh, you know, battle metaphors and killing metaphors and physical violence metaphors on both sides. And to me, that's troubling. You know, I think the question is, you, you know, don't see why, that there's a gross preponderance on one side and not the other side. You don't see that. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I, to be honest, you know, I haven't done my research to know that. Uh, I do see it anecdotally on both sides, and I, you know, I haven't measured it out. But the fact that this is what's happening, and we've it seems abandoned any kind of desire to have a rational and mutual exchange of ideas to make an agreement that's going to be beneficial for the most of us. And, you know, maybe I'm, you know, a lot of my friends call me Annie, you know, the sun will come out tomorrow, you know, Ron, you're so Annie, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, you know, that's what I would like to see. And I don't see, you know, even the tiniest uh, hint that that could, could happen the way we are now. And so what's, what's, what's happened, Mike? What's gone on? You know, how are things? I, I think I have an answer for that. I would love to hear it. I think that starting in the 80s, we lost sight of, and I think this I think this conflates also with the whole ascension of greed as a positive moral characteristic in America, but that's again another subject. But I think I think something shifted in the 80s, and whether you want to blame Reagan or Karl Rove or you know the emergence of Fox News in the 90s, but Something happened to our political discourse, and I think, you know, one of the very first milestones in that was the impeachment of Clinton. Um, and then I think you get into, later on down the road, this, this what, the birtherism of Obama, the absolute obstructionism by the GOP with Obama. Obama consistently, through, through the whole eight years, which infuriated liberals— 
attempting to work with the other side only to just get his the door shut in his face time and time again. And even now through here where there's, what, 400-something bills that have passed the House, but Mitch McConnell refuses to bring him to the Senate floor for a vote. I think, I think there's a feeling on the left that we have tried and you are no longer good faith actors, right? The, the refusing to let Obama nominate a Supreme Court justice because it was February of his last year, yet a week before the election, they rushed through Amy Comey Barrett. I think there's a level of hypocrisy that even to an objective, which apparently doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> well, that's okay. No, that even mean, to an objective viewer feels, feels unfair. And liberals love fairness. We love for things to be fair. We want everything to be fair. And, and I think there's a finally a growing frustration. And I think what you're seeing that manifested in is people like Tlaib, AOC, Omar, et cetera, that, that are finally saying, we're not, we're not going to deal with this anymore. And that devolves the situation. It's a circular devolution, right? Yeah, it's, right. It's right. not good. So what, hap- so what happened to Michelle Obama's when they go low, we go high? Well, because we we we're just we're just tired. We we done. We 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 tried. We did our best to go high, and it just hasn't worked. So now we're just done. I mean, I'm just tossing that out there. No, but I think I think there's a percentage. That- there's a large percentage of liberals who feel that way. They were, no, I, I, yeah, I've never thought about it that way. And you, and you make a, you tell a good story about, you know, where it started and how it developed. And that's a persuasive narrative. And that's something I haven't thought about before. And I appreciate you putting those details together in, in such a coherent and uh, narratively interesting way. That's a good story. Ryan, it could work. Ron, you're blowing it. You, you've got to come back with the whole, you suck, you're an idiot. No. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no. You I, goddamn I, commie, I, you pinko, know, liberal, you know. Not not at all. Not at all. And that's giving me something to think about. I'm, You know, I do have libertarian leanings. I'm a registered Republican and I do vote in every election, you know, but I'm less and less informed on the whole history of politics and what's going on because honestly, I'm disillusioned. You know, I, I am disillusioned, and uh, that that's a good story. So, what you know, do we what I, do we do, Ron? What do we do? Uh, that is a, an excellent. What do we do? Because well, everybody's disillusioned, uh, Ron. Every well, I think, I see, I, I, yeah, everybody's disillusioned. Right, and so I think if we start on a personal personal responsibility level and begin to get people to take seriously that they are in charge of the meanings they make and how they respond to those meanings and the stories they tell and that things are open for interpretation. And, you know, if that means we blow up everything, which is maybe a little bit extreme, you know, I, I think if, if we got people how, and how we get them to do this, we can talk about that. But if we got people to do what I'm suggesting, which is to take very serious and careful responsibility for their choices and why they decide to make the meanings they do and why they attribute the significances they do to those meanings, then I think we might be, you know, on a ground where we have a relatively equal playing field that we can start to make some agreements. 
And I think that is a great positive up note to wrap this discussion up with. We're, we're nearing the hour mark. Ron, excellent conversation. Really, uh, really enjoyed it. We do a, a thing here usually uh, with our guests where I'm on the constant source to try and absorb new new media. So books, TV, music, anything that's out there in, in, in sort of the absorbable world because we're all stuck in, at home, right, trying to find new stuff to binge. Is there anything out there right now that you would suggest, uh, either fun or informative, um, that, that you would like to tell our listeners about? Fun. Well, again, uh, my favorite uh, writer and thinker, God rest his pragmatic and compassionate soul, is Richard Rorty, R-O-R-T-Y. And if you just, you know, Google anything by him, uh, I, I think, you know, people can introduce themselves to a different way of thinking about things. And one that puts them as human beings and us collectively more in charge of what we agree upon as opposed to just buying into things. And he, uh, the, the first few pages of a really short article, and you can get it online, I think it's called Texts and Lumps, T-E-X-T-S. And L-U-M-P-S, texts and lumps. And the second half gets a little bit dry, but the first maybe five, six pages, very readable and, you know, sets out a way of thinking about what we call facts and objectivity in ways that I think most people haven't thought about or encountered. And I think it would be healthy for people to read the first maybe six pages of Richard Rorty's texts and lumps. Right. Subtitled uh, My Phone and Me. But yeah, that's 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 great. I I appreciate that, Ron. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a great fun discussion, and uh, I really hope the listeners out there at least walked away with something tangible, and obviously would give this a listen with um, that critical thought and critical thought process in mind. So, Ron, I, I want to well, thank let you. Me, let me just kind of respond to, they won't walk away with anything tangible. They'll walk away with whatever meanings they made from the tangible shift that we put out there. That's on them. There we, there we go. And by the way, the yeah. Annie song needs to be Hard Knock Life, not The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow. <laughs> That's a good one. It, and again, it's okay for there to be hard knocks in life. We get to choose what to do with those knocks. Nobody's saying that bad shit doesn't happen and that we don't feel bad from time to time, but we get to choose what we do with that. And that's that's what I like. Thank you, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Same it was here. Fun. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Catch us on Spotify and iTunes and at tiltatwindmills.com.